Hello, my name is Sharif from the event series Cooler Collective, and this is the second episode of Cooler Talks. And I'm joined this time by Kwame, who's the founder of live music venue The Jago and Well Seasoned. And really, this episode of the podcast is about exploring the steps needed to create a venue and social space for a community to really be built upon. And I think that you, Kwame, are one of the best people to talk to about this because the Jago has been such a flagship for hosting music from around the world with community at the heart. So it'd be great to hear about your journey with it all. So thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. Okay, so let's um, start at the beginning, your background and origins. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, so um, I well, my first job was um, in a live music venue. So when I was 18, 19, I got a job at Ronnie Scott's. Um, I worked there for probably about four years. And then I went uni and I uh, studied politics and development economics. And then after uni, um, I worked within uh, what political economy. So as a political risk analyst for a few years. And um, after a few years, decided that I really didn't like what I was doing. So um, luckily, I sort of had a bit of um knowledge on you know that sort of music side of things i was like this is something i'd like to pursue um i had by that time um i'd gone through a few jobs so it wasn't just the one job so after uni i'd sort of had like two two to three different jobs um but then one of the things i was doing um was pop-up pie so i do warehouse takeovers that kind of thing um a lot of them actually in hackney wick um before all the flats came up all the apartments Mm -hmm. came up yeah um so this was just warehouses for a very long time so i used to have a lot of parties here a lot of parties in uh in dalston and um what happened once was um i met this uh lady uh who um told me she worked or she'd been contracted to do a job for uh south bank and what she needed was someone to set up a bar because they have the africa week so it runs for like two weeks at south bank and they needed to build an authentic african market um so they were looking for uh, people with knowledge on how to different things you know sell arts, crafts, uh, clothes, but also set up a bar. So I ended up setting one at South Bank, which did really, really well. It was summer, so it did really, really well. And then at the end of that, I was thinking, okay, why why do I have a nine to five when I could be doing you know something else? So that was the first thing. The second bit was um, I ended up having a party at um, a pub in Dalston and um, all the parties that I used to do there would work really well. And the guys that run this pub asked me if I wanted to be the general manager. So I was sort of stuck between, I've got a, a, a nine to five during the week and I could be doing events. Um, so that was like s- s- the second big thing. So between the doing events that were going really well as a side hustle and you know comparing them to my monthly wage and being like yeah this this other side hustle actually makes a lot more sense um that really helped me um uh, almost i sort of take the plunge to decide this is going to be my full-time thing um i think as well like i said i had worked in a live music venue before and i think i enjoyed doing that a lot more than you know doing a country risk report as an economist (laughs) which was just a bit like okay yeah i love current affairs and all this but it is a bit boring sometimes you mentioned you were brought in because of african music so was that your background in terms of warehouse parties that you were throwing no that wasn't my background my background is um my background is jazz um so in a lot of my parties were centered around jazz music but then obviously within jazz you know you got latin jazz afro jazz so um i think the 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 main thing about my pies was it was always live music first and then 
you know, I'd have DJs after. And so it was, it was, it was a proper, like, immersive kind of experience. You know, you come in. I had a friend that would run the kitchen. So it would be food. And warehouses were much cheaper back then. You know, you could rent something for a night for 500 quid. Um, so, you know, we'd do food, we'd have the band, then we'd have um, DJs after, and you could also get a late license. So a lot of the parties would go till four, five in the morning. So these weren't necessarily like licensed venues as such? Yeah, they were not. Yeah, they were not licensed venues. You just had to, um, you had to get a TENS, which is a temporary event notice. So we would just get a TENS and then, and we'd only do sort of like one event a month. So it was pretty easy, you know, you do one event and then plan for the next one. But immediately when I'm thinking about warehouse spaces that aren't fully licensed, it kind of must have made you think about the space like a venue. Yeah. You have to make sure everything runs smoothly yeah. and you weren't necessarily given things like, you know, sound system or security. Yeah. You, you had to bring all those pieces of the puzzle together yourself. So really from the beginning of you promoting, you had that kind of knowledge. I mean, I think the, the, the thing about that is... Um, I would look at it like, how do I want my clubbing experience or my going out experience, right? So I know there's things that we have to have there. We have to have toilets. We have to have security. Um, but it's also wanting to, if if you're not doing it as a one-off, you know, you want the people that come for this event to have a good experience for the next event. So, you know, you're making sure that you've got all these things covered. And I think that's what helps. So, of course, the first two or three there's a few things that we got wrong, you know, like on the day and then you'd realise, shit, we didn't um, order ice, for example. You know, there's all these little things that over time you start, your 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 um, your organisation just gets better and better and better. But in the beginning, yeah, of course, there was a lot of things that, and it's, it's very simple things that people tend to overlook when you're putting on events, you know, especially if you're doing it in a venue that's not, um, that's not a, um, a regular venue you know it's not a licensed venue so it's very simple things like you didn't get tissues you know <laughs> toilet tissues or you didn't get or you forgot to book a cleaner during the the event you know so it's very very s small things that make a massive difference because i mean if your if your toilets don't work your event will not work if you have no ice your event will not work if you have no limes yeah maybe you'll sell some drinks but you'll have a lot of people complaining about no limes you know so it's very small small things but yeah they make a big difference so was 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 that the foundation for you wanting to have your own venue one day i didn't really think about having my own venue until um so the jago used to be passing clouds and um there was a big uh well there was a big protest but there was also a big campaign to save it and um uh that went on for about three years and it just happened that in 2018, the the building got um, an asset of community value designation, which means that the building has to be saved as a community space. So what then happened was the council was forced or forced the developer to offer it back to the local community. So I saw the advert and I was like, I actually had my freshest party at Passing Clouds when I was at uni, like first year of uni. And I'd, I'd been, you know, just one of the people that went there all the time. I lived in Dalston, so Passing Clouds was always that one venue that I always went to with friends. A lot of the people I was at uni with as well played at Passing Clouds. So, you know, it was, it was quite a, a loved space for um, people that were around my circles. Uh, so when it was offered to the someone local, I almost like a bit of a joke thing, like, okay, let me just put in a bid and see what happens and um i actually got a call to go and then i have a view and i was like okay well this is happening and uh after that everything else just fell into place i had to run around and look for um how i was going to finance it it was already a venue before so obviously after three years it was a bit the, the building had pretty much gone derelict so we had to put in a lot of money to build it up but um there was a lot of love for the building already so it made it somewhat easier to set up again because some people still remembered it from passing clouds days and i think that really helped you also mentioned putting in a bid yeah like how does one do that what what do you need to have a viable bid 
Um, so most most companies will ask for you to do um, like financial projections, to do a business plan, which is the most important thing. And I think half of a business plan is just being confident. And the other half is actually knowing what you want to do. So at that point, I'd already run a number of really good parties. So I, I knew that I had enough networks to be able to book bands, to, you know, uh, get promoters to put on their own events. Um, I knew where the building was in Dalston. Like I said, it already had a history. So, you know, you only needed to reopen, get the word out, put a few of your own sort of um, uh, internal parties and then, you know, just hope that it will all work. Um, but yeah, um, you would you would need to know what the numbers are, be able to have a conversation with someone and say, look, these are the numbers, this is what we're projecting, this is what we're focusing, and we're sure that this will work with a lot of confidence. Yeah, confidence is key in those situations. But but you also mentioned financing. In my mind, the first thing when I think about opening a venue is money. Do you need a lot of money to begin with? Do you need to raise money? Like By the end of this podcast, I'd really like people to understand what it takes to raise finance and, and get started? Um, many people come from different, you know, like uh, different backgrounds. So the challenges will not always be the same. So, you know, there's people that will be able to raise it from family. There'll be people that will be able to raise it from uh, personal savings. There'll be people that will be able to get bank loans. So in my case, I was able to get a few loans and personal savings. And then I... Um, also partnered with with someone so i initially yeah. got the venue and then i realized okay i'll definitely need someone else to come in and you know add on what the pot that we already have so that's how we did ours you know so it was two um i had a business partner and then i added a third person that was able to add on the on the sort of uh initial uh capital that we had um you know i think um it does help if you've got a sort of history of running a business already. It doesn't have to be a properly set up. Like, for example, in our case, we obviously were doing pop-ups, but we were also able to go to a bank and say, okay, we only have events once a month, but th these are the numbers we're doing, right? And if these are the numbers we're doing monthly from one event, if we were to have a venue, you know, seven days a week we you know we're focusing that we'll do this much better um now this this is the other thing like i guess it's on a it's on a case-by-case -case basis it's it's you know yeah. it's very specific to what um different people or where different people are starting um but whichever way you know if if you really want to do something you will you will make it work you'll you know, you you will. There's there's loads of um, different ways of, and especially now. I mean, we're talking five six years ago. Now, you know, you've got a lot of like crowdfunding. You've got you've got a lot more opportunities for raising finance than there was five six seven years ago. So, how do you think you need to present yourself to these investors? Is leading with the numbers the most important thing or also, you know, throwing together a nice looking deck and, and wearing something presentable, you know? I think it's a little bit of both. Anyone that's going to invest in you needs to see that you know what you're doing, right? No one's going to throw money at, at a bad idea. So you would need to be able to show that you know what you're talking about and it is a viable business, right? Because even if you went to your family, you, they need to know that they're not just yeah, giving you money to go and um, waste somewhere and this crazy idea that you have so i think it is a bit of both so it's number one you need to present uh, a business plan that that makes sense and that works for a lot of people but you also um need to have people that just believe in you and support you right so um like i said in my case i had uh, a bit of savings because prior to now um, getting my own venue, I'd worked a few years and I'd saved a bit of money. But I also had a very strong plan. I could prove that this this venue, you know, whether it was through just their socials, 
how many people knew it you mm. know th- things as 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 like for example we're just saying look 30,000 people sent emails to the council to save this venue that in itself is a very strong argument mm. right anyone would be like oh wow okay so 30,000 people know about the venue I guess it would have been different if, say, for example, I was setting up a venue completely from scratch that, you know, the the arguments or the way I'd convince people would probably have to be very different. How would you say the journey is from idea to action? So, you know, you had the idea, it was like a bit of a joke initially, and then you put in the bid and you got it. Yeah. <laughs> How does that initial idea slowly start to turn into an actual functioning venue? You obviously have to learn as you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there you 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 definitely have to learn because there's a lot of things. If you've never run a venue, that you you don't know until you know, right? So you've got all these ideas. You're like, yeah, this is how it will go, and then you're now running a venue, and then uh, you start seeing things that you'd never you'd have never anticipated. Um, so, for example, I, for example, did not realize just how quiet. Um, the summer is yeah. or when festival like festival season is for live music venues mm-hmm. you know that's something that yeah you think like okay yeah maybe it's a bit quiet but you don't realize just how quiet it is and what that means for your uh you know that what that means for just how much money you make what it means for your out, outgoing costs how you have to plan around that so does it mean you save a lot more prior to sort of April, May, so that it covers June, July till end of August. You know, you've got three months that are really, really bad. I didn't realise, um, for example, just how important it is to have like a an outside space, a beer garden of a summer. You know, people want to be outside. No one wants to be sat in a in a room when it's really hot outside. Um, it also means people come to the venue really late you know, because the sun's out until 10 p.m. or 9, you know, so people are still in the park until 9 or 10. Um, so it's these little things that you, you just don't understand. And then there's other issues that are completely out of your control. You know, we had to deal with COVID. We had to deal with Brexit and, you know, the just in terms of getting stuff to work um, a lot. There was a massive problem, I think, with a lot of... Uh, pubs venues nightclubs with just getting the right um well the right numbers and the right quality of people that could actually work behind bars um yeah so there's there's a lot that you you know it's like it's 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 a th- you're learning every single day at least for the first three four years you're learning every single day yeah i've definitely noticed from promoting that different months have different energies you know different crowds yeah um, like you said, bringing people into a room in summer is very difficult. Yeah, uh, has that encouraged you to uh, think outside the box at all and and try new things? Yeah, uh, I guess for us, you know, over summer, you we we try and do um sort of like outside outside. You know, we've we've had um we did Hackney Carnival as an example. We just set up a bar outside just to help with um uh sort of income how much we were making but also i think mostly as a live music venue for us it just means that our programming would be a bit different so if we for example usually book two bands during the summer months we'd only book one band because we're sure that first of all people come much later but also we need to keep costs low so you know there'll be less bands booked probably just one or two djs um our staffing as well you know so it's 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 not just in relation to the music it's in relation to all your operations you know like you probably need less security less staff fewer bands fewer djs that sort of thing when you said you ran the bar at a hackney carnival what would you say the importance of a bar in a venue is I mean, as a promoter, I think the first thing that usually gets said is bar spend and, and alcohol is such a driver for finance at a venue. Is, is that true? Is, is that a myth? It is. It is true. I mean, everything everything gets covered by the bar spend, um, especially for us at the Jago, because we do not take any of the door, um, which 
is unlike most venues in London. Most venues would ask for the door. Um, we have to hit the minimum bar spend because that's pretty much how we cover all our costs through the night. Um, so yeah, it's it's very it's very important. You know, like I've had events where you get loads of people, but the bar spend is not very good. And from a venue point of view, that's a terrible night, you know, because you can only sustain one or two nights where, yeah, okay, well, you got 300 people, but the spend, the bar spend was, you know, 60% of what you'd hope to achieve. And, um, you know, it's always, um, I always try and have this conversation that it's a fine balance between the vibe was great and we need to still cover our costs because at the end of the day, end of the month, when you're paying all your bills, you know, you're never going to pay your bills because, yeah, I had great nights, but I didn't make the money. You know, it's it's unfortunate as well. And this is one of the um, one of these things where if venues had more support from the government or from then they would be, you know, they would be in a position where they'd be like, OK, yeah, great. You know, we are interested in having good nights with great vibe and you know but if venues are 100 percent covering all their costs then money will always be the you know the paramount um uh, worry that every single venue has you know and culturally the uk has a bit of a bad rep for drinking culture i mean alcohol is a bit of a problem like especially in cities I mean, I mean, you walk around Shoreditch uh, on a Friday night, and you know, you see a lot of people like, on the floor, like throwing up and stuff. Like, there's such an importance placed on alcohol uh, in venues. Does that take away from the vibe a little bit? Like, what would government support mean for that? It has to be like that. I think number one, that is um, the programming of the night is very important, right? So we in the five years we've we've not had many incidences of people being absolutely wasted falling all over the place you know like what you do get like on a night you'd get one or two but that's not the majority of the people that come out um i think if venues are also proactive for example when you see uh your customers are starting to get a bit too drunk not selling them more uh more alcohol um that would help i think there are some mainstream venues that probably just, you know, keep selling because, um, you know, everyone's just trying to make as much money as possible. But if you run a venue on a sort of as a community venue, you know, you care about people that come to the venue, you care that they have a good night, you care that everyone gets back home safe, you shouldn't really have incidences like this. Yeah, like I recently went through the process of getting a personal license. Yeah. Um, and for those for those that don't know what that is, it's basically a, a license that gives you the ability to sell alcohol in a venue and, and being the person on site to make it legal. And during the course, I just didn't feel that like there was enough um, stressed on how to responsibly sell alcohol. It was yeah. all about laws and event notices and, and you know, all the legal stuff. And it, it touched upon stuff like, you know, don't sell to, to children, but it's like the policy isn't really rooted on taking care of people. No, it's not. But um, I have to say there's some councils that are really out there trying to, to you know, to do like extra, you know, or cover where sort of, okay, yeah, so now you've got your personal license, what next? So, for example, Hackney Council has Hackney Nights. Oh, yeah. Um, and one of the aims of Hackney Nights, so first of all, what Hackney Nights is, it's an accreditation for venues. So you go through all these online um, classes, I'd call them. And once you, you know, once you finish all, um, all these online courses, you get a certificate to say, you know, you've trained and you're aware of, for example, keeping your crowd safe, keeping women safe when they go out, uh, things like um, you look at harassment, you look at keeping venues um, open to uh, sort of the LGBTQ community, that sort of thing. So one of the courses they do is the responsible selling of um, alcohol to your to your customers, which is very important. So I think it's, um, yeah, maybe the, the personal license that doesn't completely cover this, but um, some councils are very proactive in, you know, doing the extra to make sure that 
um, their nights are safe. I think maybe the the other issue here is that um, in terms of nightlife, there's obviously a lot more nightlife in Hackney than, say, I don't know, Tandridge Council. Mm -hmm. So Hackney has more of a proactive approach because they understand that, you know, this is a, this is a big part of what Hackney as a borough is, right? So they yeah. make an effort to cover these things, whereas mm. um, a much quieter borough just doesn't really care because it doesn't really affect them or it's not really a thing they should be thinking about at the moment. Do you have to pay close attention to any issues that might happen on site? So if there's an accident at your venue, are you the one that's liable? You are liable. I mean, they're at your venue, right? So you're supposed to keep them safe. Yeah. This is why, you know, you've got security checking everyone going into venues because, you know, it is, like you said, some people have a problem with them handling their drink and some of our, you know, some areas in London, sometimes, you know, they're not the safest. You do get loads of different people on a night out and yeah, anything can happen. Okay. I want to talk about the importance of uh, building a team at a venue. Uh, you have people that you work with and collaborate with and, you know, you're a co-founder, so you have a partner um, at the Jago. What is it about a team that can make or break a venue? Um, I think, uh, well, number one, it's very important to have a team that understands what you're trying to do, you know, what, what, why are you here? You're not just a venue putting on events, right? Mm. You're trying to create something special. I also think um, once you set up the venue, getting the right team is really important because otherwise you end up, you know, as the founder doing everything by yourself, which means when you're not there, nothing, you know, nothing works. Um, so at the Jago, uh, we've been very lucky because, um, First of all, I took advantage of uh, the Kickstart scheme, which was a scheme for 16 to 24-year-olds. And I was I was able to get about eight members of, 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 um, of staff. Oh, wow. And of those, we were able to keep four who are now part of the team. Of those four, one of them is actually the... Uh, the the manager at the Jago now. Oh, amazing. So she's running the Jago. And I was able to sort of have her work at the Jago for about a year as part of, of, of the Kickstart scheme, you know, show her this is how everything should work. This is, you know, this is how nights should run. And now one year later, she's able to do that. And I think that's what's important with within a team. Um, we have also been very lucky that we've had people, because um, I think the other issue with venues is, it's, it's um, especially with staff, is that it's very transient, you know, it's, it's a kind of job you do when you're at uni. You know, there are very few people that work in venues and then look at that as a career. Um, we've been very lucky that we've had, we've got maybe four or five people that have been with us more than three years. Oh, great. Oh, yeah. So, you know, we've got Charlene, we've got Joe, we've got Ty, Jaden. You know, these are people that have been with us at least, um, yeah, at least three. Like, Joe's been there quite quite a while yeah the kickstarter scheme is for young people so you've so you've nurtured young people into getting involved in events yeah and it's always important to look to the younger generations and, and tap into their friends and their networks yeah. i think a space like the jago can be inspiring for them and you know as all different communities and, and people walk through that door yeah i mean like for example our kickstarter scheme um to people that joined um they joined as sign engineers and uh, two of them are now sort of putting on their own events as well you know jacob and jack and they pretty much always sell out because this is the other great thing about um having sort of younger people you know they're still uh at that age where they they have a party and invite 150 friends <laughs> and all 150 friends actually turn up <laughs> so you know it does make business sense you know having like local young people come and work there you know like okay yeah you've got a job but also you know they feel like they're part of that community and they you know they're incentivized to have their own parties and invite their their friends so yeah it's great yeah, that's really good. And with the Jago as well, it came from Passing Clouds, which was, was known by a lot of people. Um, does that crowd still come through 
is is it the same as it was before or are you getting new people coming through i think it was um it was a mix of both so we still get a few people that uh, obviously passing clouds was there for more than 10 years so you know i guess we will always be even this weekend i'm sure there'll be someone that will come and we'll be like, oh i was here when it was last passing clouds five years ago right mm -hmm. so we we get a lot of that but um when we re re uh reopen obviously it reopened as the jago and we were able to build our own crowd but um uh a lot of the people that come out to the jago are also very local so i'm sure there's a good percentage that used to go to passing clouds however that said um hackney and dawson has changed a lot and it continues to change really quickly um so you know the crowd that was in hackney seven years ago so the crowd that was probably there when it shut down in 2016 is probably you know most of them probably moved to other cities yeah so they're probably you know like it's a very small percentage that is part of that older crowd um that used to come before but um yeah i think we still get um, a bit of both Okay. Being local and understanding Hackney quite well and seeing it change, what are some of those differences? What was it like before and what are the ch current challenges of running a venue there at the moment? Um, so I think that is part of a deeper, of a deeper, well, maybe it's a problem or an opportunity. I'm not too sure. But um, so you've got the whole of Hackney gentrifying and... Um, and you know there's different aspects of gentrification that are very problematic so number one is that the the original community always gets somehow um driven out of the area because they just can't afford rent um a lot of uh locals that used to live in dawson probably lived in council housing which were then sold you know, and now the the area is becoming more and more expensive, and they are then forced to go for much further and further away, which is a problem for most big cities around the world. Anyway, you know, the this same conversation is what people are having in Barcelona, in New York. So, it's not just a London problem. Now, as a business owner, it does work to our benefit sometimes because we now have a lot of people that move to the area with disposable income. So it's one of those things that you're not really too sure how you feel about. Like on the one hand, I'm a bit like, oh, there's a lot of people that were locals that I knew that lived here and now just cannot live here anymore. Like people that I grew up with. But on the other hand, the only reason that we are able to sustain the businesses that we have in Hackney is because, yeah, there are people with, you know, a lot more disposable income. I guess the best case scenario would be the council doing more to provide social housing and affordable housing for local people um i think the other side to that as well is you know right now in hackney there's a, a massive problem with noise complaints and it's it's all over the uk but hackney has and i know this from mvt because um they pro they um produced a, a paper not too long ago Hackney has the highest number of noise complaints in the country. And that's because, you know, you get people that have recently moved here. They've had great things about Hackney. And then suddenly they move here and they're like, oh, actually, uh, I don't think I enjoy, you know, a, a, a borough that is this dynamic and boisterous on a Friday and Saturday. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? So the idea of oh yeah trendy dalston and actually living in dalston are two very different things as a resident um i've always lived in dalston i think living in dalston i've always been happy with some noise because i know i live in dalston you know if i wanted somewhere mm -hmm. really quiet I'd probably move to Surrey or something <laughs> so um i think i think that's the issue with the changes that we've seen we've seen in uh in hackney and I just hope that um, we can find, as residents, as local residents, we can find a formula that works for both the people who have been here long term and people that have just moved here. Yeah. Um, there's also like a massive problem with self-exclusion, which is basically, you know, spaces like the Jago, they're open to everyone. But at some point, you know, you get 
sort of bubbles growing. So everyone that ends up coming to the Jagos, sort of the same type of person that's, you know, probably votes left, went to uni. You know, the conversations we are having start being very intellectual. And then some people feel like, oh, I can't really jam with those guys because, you know, when I go to the Jago, they're just talking about, you know, Rosu and Max or what. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? And I feel like that is the other problem that, um, and I know this Hackney, by the way, um, has, you know, like there's a Windrush fund, fund now that they're doing. Um, there have been loads of different grants to try and get everyone to feel welcome in venues, not just, oh yeah, well, the new people that moved here you know, because when you say like everyone's welcome, you should also think about, you know, people on different socioeconomic levels, you know, do they feel like they can actually come there and hang out with other people? Or are you open, but only open to people that, you know, are on your socioeconomic level? It's an interesting point And yeah, it's really important to think about everyone. Also with, with housing, that that's the thing I notice around London. All of these flats that pop up, yeah. they all kind of look the same and are targeted at, at people, you know, with good incomes and corporate jobs yeah. that might have interest like you just talked about. Mm. But that's having a direct effect on your venue, having people living so close and so locally and getting, you know, people getting planning permission. Housing is a fundamental need. You know, you mentioned there isn't enough social housing yeah. and there aren't, uh, and there are all these like monotonous flats that are getting closer and closer to these spaces. Is there such a thing as conscious gentrification? Is there such a way to curb and limit this? Um, is there a solution? Well, yeah, I guess the yeah, I guess it will be maybe not conscious gentrification, but maybe when when councils were initially talking about regeneration, I guess that would be what you know what you're suggesting. But I also feel that the laws around new bills were not really enforced so for example in the past there's been scandals where company a would get planning permission to build flats and they would say 10 percent of the flats would be social or affordable housing and instead what they would do is they would not build those 10 percent of flats at that one development they'd build it somewhere else so they would still tick a box of saying we built, you know, out of 100 houses we built, or 100 flats, we built 10 cheaper flats or affordable flats. But then they'd take it really far away, you know, like barking or something. And then, you know, they'd keep their more expensive flats in Dalston or in Hackney Wick. Um, and I don't know if, I can't I can't say for certain, I don't know if the, the council has really enforced this, but it doesn't seem like it has because we see a lot of developments going up and we can see that, you know, there's not that many um, affordable houses within those developments. So that is definitely a problem. And I think this is something that, well, only the council or the government can deal with. Yeah. Um, but I also think that the other side to this argument is a lot of residents in these local councils, these local boroughs, are not very involved with local issues. So, you know, a lot of these um, building permissions have to go through like a 28-day where locals are asked to come and either object or to, you know, agree with the plans. And if more local people actually attended these uh, meetings, perhaps, you know, um, development companies wouldn't get away with just doing whatever they want. Hmm. That's 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 a really good point. And 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 how how are you making your venues more accessible to the community? If you know if there are all these hiking prices, you obviously want to cultivate community. The average price of pints these days now in London is is hiking to like seven seven pounds. So are you consciously trying to keep it fair? We are. We are. Yeah. I think. Okay. So there's two issues here. Number one is how are we making the venue accessible to the community. So. At the Jago, for example, we've got a food bank on a Monday and a Tuesday. Okay. So just as part of our community thing. Mm. We're also in talks at the moment with Hackney Council to start running um, housing surgeries when we've got the food bank on. So we will have a housing officer present at the Jago. So when, you know, a lot of the people that come to the food bank, either from struggling local families or just people that want to support the food bank, 
mm. um, or you know you care about food going to waste. So you don't have to be poor to use a food bank. You know you can just use a food bank because you don't want food to go to waste. Uh, but a lot of them will have similar problems with housing, right? So one of the things that we are doing now is we will have um, housing surgeries at the Jago on a Monday and Tuesday. That we hope would be something that will draw even more uh, people from the local community to see the Jago. Because my thing is, I I don't I don't understand um, this idea of venues are just it's a pub. You yeah, know, it doesn't yeah, have to be just a pub, just a club. It mm. can be a community space. You know, you're paying for the venue 24 hours. You know, if you're paying rent, you're paying 24 hours of rent. But you tend to use a venue only from 7 p.m. till midnight or, you know, 6 p.m. till 1, 1 in the morning. Most venues tend to be empty during the day, right? So why not use it as a rehearsal space, as a studio, as a co-working space, as a meet up for local unions whatever it is so that is what we hope to achieve with the jago and then the other question i guess is okay so how so accessibility more socially but also like from uh i guess a financial point of point of view i guess um we don't have much uh, room to move there because um Prices are going up. So, for example, we, for a very long time, were probably one of the venues with the the cheapest prices. That's not Weatherspoons. Um, you know, we used to sell pints for five quid. Those went up. We then moved to 550 and now 580. Um, just as an example, price per pint of one of the uh, beers that we buy has gone up by £1.60. Whoa. which would mean we need to sell a pint at a minimum of seven pounds. I personally have a massive problem with selling beer at anything more than six pounds. I really don't know what's going to happen here. Um, I'm saying, obviously, I would rather not ever go over six pounds, but the way cost, you know, cost of living obviously affects everything else. And the way that is going, it is very likely that most venues in in the in London maybe maybe in the UK will have to start pricing you know with consider with consideration to solve inflation and all these other uh, issues that affect um you know the, the cost of mm. buying whatever product we're buying from spirits to beer to garnishes or whatever else yeah those prices will get passed on to the customer which is not ideal but it's what you have to do to survive. And, and there there are a lot of problems when it comes to an economic downturn. You know, people aren't going out as much. You're going to have to start charging more. And, you know, this creates a bit of a tough problem. But, you know, if the program is good and the vibe's still good and you're still trying to cultivate cultivate that, then then hopefully, you know, you can weather the storm. Yeah, it is. But I, th- I think the other challenge is that um, you know, your programming can be as good as you want, but if people do not have that disposable income, what are they going to do? So we're noticing a lot of people coming out much later. Um, and I am guessing that people are now making a choice of, yeah, they will still always go up. People will not stop going out, but they will probably pre-drink at home, which now is going to be an issue for most venues and promoters. So we've been looking at ways of now starting to ask for a cut of the door because if, you know, and this is one one of the, the issues that a lot of venues will be facing. So we, are, when, when we started out, we never wanted to get any cut of the door. But if you're getting the same numbers of people, but only later, it means there's less drinking hours or, you know, less drinking time, which means the bar spend is much less than, you know, typically would be. Um, what does that mean for the venue? Um, but I guess if everyone understands that, um, you know, v- venues are facing the same challenges that promoters are facing and everyone's in it together and no one's like, oh, yeah, well, but, you know, I used to make X amount and I still want to make X amount, then it will work. The problem will only be if, uh, you know, people think, oh, yeah, venues have only increased prices because you know they're trying to make more money now that's not to say some venues are not taking advantage of the situation and doing exactly that 
Uh, and I guess that will be more on a case-by-case basis where a promoter, for example, knows this venue and knows that they are you know, not always out to make money. And then they'd have to make the judgment for themselves. Mm, it's a challenge you have to keep thinking about and, and something that you know we're all in together. Maybe it needs everyone in the industry to have some kind of say and, and bring some kind of campaign to life. Uh, I think everyone's striking these days and every, everyone's getting to the point where they've had enough. Yeah. I mean, I heard something. I, I haven't um, researched it yet, but I heard that um, DCMS and MVT, I'm not sure who was pushing it, um, they were talking about having the bigger um, uh, event companies, the bigger um, chains to pay into a fund that will then be distributed to grassroots venues. So that would be, you know, amazing. So you could have the, you know, the big chains that run Tiger, Tiger and Prism and that sort of place paying into this fund. And then this money is then passed on to grassroots venues. And then that would, you know, if if grassroots venues were getting funding, a lot of them would be happy to keep prices at what, at what they were. So some, something like that would be very helpful. Um, Germany, uh, Berlin's doing it. You know, we know that Berlin's famous for supporting like their nightlife. And we would hope that London would come up with something similar, not just, you know, a very competitive process of applying for Arts Council where you might get it, you might not, because, you know, not everyone has the same capacity to make an application. And, yeah, you know, and, yeah, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. Yeah, I think there's definitely a lot we can learn from other cities. And, you know, speaking to a few friends that DJ and our creatives, they seem to get booked in, in like places like Eastern Europe because there's a lot more funding for them over there to bring artists from different countries and yeah. get more experimental with their programming and take more risks. Yeah. And, and I think there's really a beauty in taking a risk. You know, you could be contributing to founding someone's career, giving someone a platform. And I think these things can manifest into really cool and fruitful things. I think nowadays I see everything and it kind of looks the same, that the lineups are the same and everyone is playing playing it safe. And I think the cost of that is it's not as interesting, it's not as dynamic. And and London is known for being a very dynamic city that puts on things from all over the world and, and all different backgrounds. And it's a shame if we have to lose that because of, you know, safety and because of money. But I guess the the yeah, I guess the the challenge will always be that you know for a venue to put on an event, they need to almost have a guarantee that it will work. So perhaps the only thing they would be willing to do is you know get the opening band to be something completely different. But the you know the main act would always be the act that they're sure will bring in the numbers. Yeah, I think I'm starting to notice that as well with promoting is that. You do have to be strategic with making headliners popular and, and you know, that can really bring people down. So, yeah. But, you know, you, you run the Jago, but you've also been doing that for five years. Uh, but you've also opened up a venue called Well Seasoned in Peckham. And yeah. it had a launch and now it's closed to be relaunched soon. Can you tell us a little bit about Well Seasoned and your plans to reopen it? Yeah, so opened World Seasoned in Peckham, was there for just under a year, but then the parent company that actually owned the the whole building, so it was sort of on the fifth floor of this building, they were having financial challenges. They opted to then sell their lease to a, th- a third company, an American company. We didn't think it would work for us at the space because number one it had a really early license and number two yeah the the vibe just wasn't right it just wasn't the right vibe so what we did then was look for a different space in Peckham which we have now found and um, we're currently uh, just about to finalize uh, the takeover so we pretty much we pretty much done everything so we are relaunching uh, well seasoned, but now well seasoned would be more of a of a promoter uh, because this venue that we've taken over has been running for a number of years as well. It's been running for about three four years, uh, so it will keep the same name and we'll probably have it as well seasoned takeovers at the venue's Peckham Audio. Oh wow! Yeah, so um, one of the things that we're keen to introduce at Peckham Audio is a lot more live music 
especially in the uh, earlier hours because Peckham Audio has a 4M license. Mm -hmm. So what we'd want to do is have live music from sort of 8, 9 p.m. till 11.30 and then have the DJs take over from 11.30 midnight till 4 in the morning. And that way we can, you know, program around people that come earlier for the live music, have like one ticket for both events or a ticket just for the earlier bit or and a ticket for the later bit. And when it comes to opening up a second venue, I, I can imagine it's easier in some respects and, you know, you know the process, but you've obviously had to put aside money and then find and seize the opportunity. Was a second venue always on the horizon for you? Yeah, because it was on the horizon. I also really wanted to do something in the south because I've been in the east for so long. Um, uh, Peckham's like one of those areas that, you know, it's really vibey like it's just the right time um a lot is changing there as well but also saying that you know like i'd say yeah put, start setting up a second venue is really easy but you know you still get some challenges so for example when we got well seasoned initially we didn't realize the company we were buying a lease from had financial problems they never they never told us that you know they didn't make us aware that actually we're you know we're on the verge of uh, dissolving our company. So these are the issues that, you know, you'll never be aware of until, you know, much later on. And it does affect you. And, um, you know, there's a lot of uh, companies out there that, you know, might not necessarily be unscrupulous, but only work to their benefit. You know, they don't work. You know, you've got this idea of, you know, we're making music and the arts and you know we're keeping london uh nightlife alive but there's a lot of people that are also just out to get profits i think the way people need to look at this is you know money talks yes the developers will always buy spaces there's not really much we can do about that but number one like i said as long as the community is involved in you know because councillors sit in the planning committees and if they can see that the community feels strongly about something, they tend to always agree with the community. That's the first bit. The second bit is if the community cares enough about their community, you know, there's loads of different ways that we can now start um, running our own venues, you know, sort of through community trusts, through CICs. You know, people can come together, raise money, sell shares, you know, have community ownership of venues of public spaces is very possible yeah the community just needs to feel as part of the community i think the other challenge might be that a lot of our communities are also very new right like you've got loads of people that have just moved to this area do they feel like they're part of the community or do they still feel like oh i'm new here so i'm not really you know part of this community but um if Again, if local people are really involved with the local politics, then there's no reason why we can have a lot of these spaces saved for community use. Yeah, definitely. And in a place like Peckham, are you getting to know the community through this venture? Was there a lot of outreach you had to do? Yeah, so it's it's very slow, but yeah, you know, reaching out to other businesses. Um, so for example, at this new space, we don't have a kitchen, but we will be using the kitchen so there's a there's a floor just above us that has like a food court one of the ideas i have is to be able to serve food in the venue but you know the food will all come from the the businesses that are on the top floor running the food court so you know that that sort of way of reaching out to different people working together towards a common goal is what would build this community so now if we look at venues in the UK and in, in London, we've obviously talked about what makes them special and, and there are lots of challenges. But what do you think the trends are telling us? Is it easy for someone today to start a venue? You know, prices have gone up, yes, but is there more challenges that there were five years ago when you started the Jago? I think I think there's definitely more challenges now. It's not easy. Um, uh, I guess it's just where you're coming from when you, when you set up a a venue you know as long as you're not looking to make massive prof profits from day one it is doable it probably is much easier out of london as well so you know i've i rarely go up north um but very recently i've been going a lot to sheffield leeds manchester yeah the creative scene out there is 
definitely pop in. I mean, it kind of gets overshadowed yeah. by by London a lot. Yeah, I think if if someone's looking to open something in 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 those cities, it would probably be slightly easier. There's still um, a lot of properties there that are not super expensive. Yeah, the challenges are, you know, they're the same. You're dealing with the same thing from logistical challenges brought on by Brexit to, you know, like right now you you try by CDJs, massive, massive weight, weight, you know. Yeah. Anywhere you go, like you just can never get equipment, you know. So I think it's because of this chip. Yeah, this one chip. Maybe we should all invest in chips. That's, <laughs> what, that's what we need to do. Yeah. So, so, so you think it takes a lot of time to, to get everything started? It does take time. It takes patience. It takes um, having belief in what you're doing uh, and then just, you know, relentlessly pursuing it. But it's it's doable. Like I said, nightlife will always exist. Music will always exist. The arts will always exist. People will always want to go and relax after her day's work somewhere. That just means there's a lot of, of opportunity to um you know to set up these venues especially community centered venues i think mm -hmm. there's a move away from these big chains with that are just soulless you know there's people want to feel like they're part of something and as long as as a venue you are you know you're you're engaging with the community there'll always be room for more venues like that yeah yeah it's true that you know when one venue shuts its doors it gives the opportunity for another one to open its doors and, and hopefully to keep the creative energy live alive. And I think it's really nice to see what you've done with the Jago and that you've really tried to keep the energy of passing clouds. And it's a fight, you know, we keep having developers um, try and apply for planning permission literally two or three metres away from us, you know. Um, it is it is a fight. It's something that, you know, we, we sort of resigned ourselves to. Okay, this is something that we'll constantly be fighting for the next however long but um yeah i mean there's there's not much there's not much we can do um one of my one of the of the things i hope is that within the next year or two we'll be able to transition the jago to a community trust as well to be run by community trust oh, wow. so that we can because at the moment we've got a long lease for the building but um we've got a right to buy so one of the things that I hope to do is be able to turn it into a proper community. At the moment, yeah, we do all this community stuff based because we're pushing to do community stuff. But um, if we can actually um, have it run by, you know, a CIC or a community trust and have the local community buy shares of, you know, and then buy the building. I think that would be a great way of making sure that that building always remains, you know, a, a, a community-centered art space. I also just want to acknowledge you for, for really doing a lot for the people that come to your venues and, and trying to get the balance between profits and community. And, you know, it's not easy. And I really hope that there are other people out there in, in, the, in the scene that, that are trying to do the same thing. So thanks so much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. I also want to know, you know, to finish off, just what kind of impact and legacy you want to leave uh, on the London scene? Um, I mean, I, I love music, you know, I'm a, I'm a failed trumpeter. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I started out in, you know, I, I used to play uh, trumpet. I wasn't very good at it, I have to say. Um, then obviously I ended up going to uni and um, I studied you know, development economics. So one of the things when, when I went to uni was obviously I, care about community development but I also care about music and I wanted to bring those two things together you know so providing spaces for musicians is very important but also providing a living for musicians so it's not just providing a space but actually and this is why at the Jago we had initially this setup where the promoters take all of the door because you know I had some bands for example that had never promoted an event and then they run their own event and they made X amount of money. And, you know, so many times someone someone asked me, like, are you sure you're letting us take all the money? You know, because they just thought, like, yeah, but that doesn't seem right. Like, are you sure you're doing this? Like, there must be a cut somewhere. 
And we always have the same conversation where we're like, no, there's literally no catch. We are happy for you to take the money, but you, we also need you to really push and promote this event so that the venue also makes money. Because if the venue does not make money, then you know everyone loses. So um, ultimately, what I hope is, you know, I'd be able to. In in a way, I'm trying to prove that running a business that's ethical that you know, everyone gets a good deal, a fair deal. I'm trying to prove that this is not just woke or whatever you want to call it. You know, it is actually good business practice and it actually makes um, financial sense. You know, a happier team works harder. Promoters that know they're getting, they're getting a good deal will probably like go out there and promote harder, that kind of thing. Um, that is ultimately what I, I, I hope to um, to achieve. And I'm obviously not going to be doing this forever. You know, late nights uh, are not the easiest thing every day. I've been doing it five years. So at some point, you know, you start feel, mm-hmm. feeling like it gets to you. Um, but it would be great to set up a number of venues, run um, with the same ideals, that then have longevity you know that will stay here for a while that will provide these spaces you know we can't have every single venue in london just playing the same house and techno music you know there must be a space somewhere that will program a peruvian flutist you Mm -hmm. know like (laughs) there must be a space that can program that on a friday and saturday and not just oh yeah we'll put this uh you know, music that we don't understand on a Monday night when, you know, we're not at danger of losing too much money. So that that is that is the that is the goal. Yeah, that's a great mission to have. Uh, thank you, Kwame, for joining me. It's, it's really been a nice chat. Thank you very much for inviting me. Cheers. So this is the second episode of Cooler Talks. And, you know, we hear about different ways of building communities within the music industry. Our first talk was about music marketing and this edition is focusing on building grassroots ventures. We have lots more episodes coming up monthly, so stay tuned. It airs on the third Monday of each month on Voices Radio and then is available on a range of platforms after that. So you've been listening to me, Sharif, with Kwame from the Jago. Uh, Till next time.